0: Over the last several weeks, we have been looking at the face-to-face encounters in the Scriptures with Jesus Christ. And um, over the last few weeks, we've been focused in on Jesus last week. And it is absolutely filled with encounters, with miracles, and with teaching. And today, we're going to be exploring one of the most challenging passages in the Scripture um, because it deals to a large degree with prophecy. And and I realized that in a congregation like ours that is very, very diverse, we have pre-tribulation people, post-tribulation people, uh, pre-wrath people, pan-tribulationists, which I happen to be. It's all gonna pan out. We'll figure it out um, when God comes back because he's got a great plan. Same thing with the millennium. We have pre-millennials, post-millennials, amillennials, don't even know what a millennial is. Some think it's a generation. We've got everything in here among us. Well, I'm going to put you at ease first of all. We're not going to take any positions. We're just going to look at what Jesus says and do our best to to try to understand what he's saying and allow it to transform us. And I, what I hope that you walk away with today is an understanding of the purpose of prophecy more than anything else. Because ultimately, prophecy is not about a when or a what. It is all about a who. Jesus Christ. It all points to Him. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 24. It's a, it's a rather lengthy read. We're going to, to watch it off the, the Luma Project to kind of um, put ourselves in the setting to a degree. Jesus had left the temple with His disciples. Um, they, have a, they make a, a, a remark about the temple at the beginning of the passage, and then um, Jesus uh, makes a prediction there, and then they walk across the valley onto the Mount of Olives, and they're looking back at the temple, and this is where he is giving uh, a lengthy portion of Scripture uh, that is prophecy. And so let's go to the Scripture now, and uh, then we'll begin to unpack it together.
1: Jesus left the temple and was walking away when His disciples came up to Him to call His attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then, the end will come. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you, there he is, out in the wilderness, do not go out. Or here he is, in the inner ruins, do not believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, there the vultures will gather immediately after the distress of those days the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken then will appear the sign of the son of man in heaven and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the son of man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other now learn this lesson from the fig tree as soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out you know that summer is near even so when you see all these things, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the sun, but only the Father. one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a handmill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So, you also must be ready because the son of man will come at an hour when you do not expect him who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time it will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns truly i tell you he will put him in charge of all his possessions But suppose that servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away a long time. And he then begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth.
0: All right, everybody got it? It all makes sense. Because I'm really tempted to just say, Jesus is coming back. Amen. Let's dismiss. Um, because it, there's so much there. In, anybody have any questions, or you got, you got it all you got all those details figured out? Yeah, me, me neither. So here's the deal. Let, let's start with this. What is the purpose of biblical prophecy? Why does God give us prophecy in the scripture? What is it there to do? Is it so that we can have a timeline and build charts or satisfy our curiosity about the future? Is the purpose to give us a way to examine current events and try to fit them into some mystery? No, I believe God's purpose in prophecy is far greater than that. Prophecy is incredibly important. I can share with you as a personal testimony that it was study on prophecy that God used to prompt my heart and to a certain degree build some fear in me about his return and facing him as judge that he used to bring me to personal faith in Jesus Christ. So I'm deeply indebted to prophecy. But I also wanna make sure that we take a balanced approach because it has a purpose that is designed to help us. And the, way, the best way I know to explain really the purpose of prophecy is I, I, I asked my eye doctor, the wonderful and beautiful Nina. If you need an eye doctor, by the way, over, right over here, Janina is amazing. Um, she really, really is. And uh, I am indebted because I can see you because of her work. So I'm very, very thankful. So she has helped me out and, and provided this wonderful set of lenses and eyeglasses here because this is the purpose of prophecy. Its purpose is to correct our focus, to have us look again at God with a clear understanding of who he is. The purpose of prophecy is not so that we can figure out timelines, not so that we can figure out what comes next necessarily. It is ultimately to correct our focus on our vision of God. So let me give you some things to begin. We're going to come back to this in a moment when we get to the passage, and I I hope it will be helpful as I try to explain this to us. First of all, prophecy affirms God's message. Fulfilled prophecies of the past remind us um, that the prophecies of the things yet to come are true and we can be confident that they will be fulfilled. That means that we should live each day in light of that hope and of that certainty. Jesus has told us that he's coming back. The first thing that, that that should do is make us live expectant of his return. And to think of each day, if Jesus was to come back today, Would my heart be ready? Would I be about the things that really are important in my life? Or has my vision drifted either onto myself or onto others or onto this world? Do I need a correction in my vision so that I'm looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith? That's the first thing that prophecy does. It affirms God's message. Secondly, biblical prophecy proves Jesus' identity. In Jesus' first coming, his incarnation, his virgin birth, his sinless life, the miracles that he performed, the teaching, his suffering upon the cross, his burial, resurrection, ascension, and the giving of the Holy Spirit to the church fulfilled over 300 biblical prophecies perfectly. There is absolutely no way anyone except for God, the one that God had revealed in his word, could have come close to fulfilling all those prophecies unless he truly was God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Biblical prophecy gives us assurance that God is working even in the darkness because so often the prophecies that we see in the scripture connect with people who are discouraged, who are broken, who are in captivity, who are in prison. And God reminds them that one day he will balance the scales. He is not only the suffering servant who came as our savior, he is the righteous judge who will wipe away every tear, who will heal every disease, and who will bring justice to the earth. In other words, he is our hope. Biblical prophecy also encourages endurance to persevere in the midst of trial of difficulty and especially in persecution. Biblical prophecy also promotes obedience. And if you're going to take take away one thing above anything else that you may get today, it is this. The study of biblical prophecy should always result in obedience now rather than an obsession with what is next. That's why he gives it to us obedience now rather than an obsession with what is next. And that's why prophecy is designed to correct our focus, to remember that God is God and that all of us will give an account before Him. When it comes to prophecy that we see in the Scripture, we have two equal dangers, On the one hand, we can obsess over it and try to fit current events into a conspiracy of ideas and try to make everything fit and, and figure out who each person is that's identified in the scriptures and prophecy and we become obsessed with the what's next. The other danger is that we avoid it and we are ignorant of what God has chosen to reveal to us and the reminder that he is pointing us towards. So we want to take it seriously, but also we want to look for Jesus in the midst of it. That brings me to my second point. The purpose of prophecy is to correct our focus. The person of biblical prophecy, all biblical prophecy, ultimately is Jesus. I want you to turn the, the book that is most known for um, prophecy is the book of Revelation. And um, I'm going to help you understand the book of Revelation in one sentence. Okay? If you'll turn there to Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1. Okay? I'm going to, first of all, it's not revelations. I know lots of times you hear people say it that way and preachers say it that way. It's a revelation, just one, it's singular. Okay? Now, what I want you to do to understand the book of Revelation, all you have to do is read the first phrase. And if you have the NIV, look on the screen because the translation in the NIV is actually a little bit off from from the original language. So, we're going to put it on the screen. What is the first phrase? Say it together. The revelation of... That's what it's all about. It's not about events. Although it talks about those, it's not about a timeline. It's not about figuring everything else. It's the revelation of a person, of Jesus Christ. When we look at prophecy from that perspective, it changes everything. For one, it takes the pressure off because we're not trying to figure out all of God's plan. We're looking for how we can serve, honor, and glorify Him. That's its focus. Prophecy is what led Anna and Simeon to be diligently praying that they would see the Messiah in their lifetime. And they saw Jesus as a baby when he's dedicated at the temple. You see, they knew prophecy, but prophecy pointed them to a person, to Jesus himself. They weren't obsessed with figuring out how everything fit together. They were focused in and praying that the Lord would allow them to see the Savior. The end of Revelation concludes and shows us, again, who this book is about. The ending of it in, in Revelation 22, 20, and 21 says this, He who testifies to these things says, which is Jesus, Surely I am coming soon, which means suddenly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Amen. Revelation and all prophecy ultimately is about Jesus, and it should always point us to Jesus. Well, when we come to this particular passage, it's a very link. We only read on the screens, we only read half of Jesus' teaching. And to to understand it, we're actually going to go to the part we didn't see. We're going to go to the end of the prophecy to see the point that Jesus wants to make, and then we're going to back up and begin to look at part of it. Any of you who are getting nervous about how long I'm going to go, eventually I will just stop, okay? Because uh, I'm never going to get through hardly any of it, to, to be honest. It's, it's, it's just, there's just so much here. But let's look at the point Jesus wants to drive home in the purpose of this prophecy. Everything that we heard in Matthew 24 and what he's going to tell us in parables in Matthew 25, let's look what he says, beginning in verse 31 of chapter 25. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another as a uh, a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of these, the least of my brothers or sisters, you did it to me. This is the so what of the whole passage that Jesus is teaching. He's teaching us about his second coming. He's teaching us about events that are going to unfold for the purpose of reminding us that he has called us to be his hands and feet, to be Jesus to the people around us. And that if we fail in that, it doesn't matter how much we have figured out about a time sequence of events. If we fail in this, we fail the test. In fact, it goes on to say that if we fail in that, if there's not evidence of our faith that produces love for others in a practical way, then we're not really saved. We don't really have a relationship with God to begin with. And we face Him not as Savior, but as judge. So, Jesus' purpose in telling His disciples and in telling us this lengthy passage was to remind us to be about the work of the kingdom to make sure that we are feeding those who are hungry both physically and spiritually, to give refreshment to those who are thirsty, both physically and those who thirst for God, to care for the stranger, to invite them into our lives, to serve the needy, to visit those who are sick physically, emotionally, relationally, and spiritually, to stand with those who are in prison, both those who are literally in jail and those who have been imprisoned by abuse, by sin, by brokenness, to stand with the persecuted and the oppressed. These actions measure out our, rough, our love for God and prove whether or not it is real. They are a vision test to see if our eyes are on ourself or on Jesus Christ. And to those who choose to love in this way, to love God in this way that naturally results in a love for others, he says this, the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Our reward comes because we love God, because we love Jesus enough to be his hands and his feet to the people around us. That's the purpose. He's showing us that prophecy is designed to point us back, to refocus our lives on what is ultimately important. So now let's go back and let's look at this passage. And I'm gonna just give you a, a few things that I hope will help at least begin a process of you being able to explore it and understand it. So let's back up just a couple verses before where we um, saw in Matthew 24 to the end of Matthew 23. Jesus says this in verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood, her chicks under her wings. And you were not willing. See, your house is left It is left to you desolate, which means empty. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus' love for us, even for those who rebel against him, is powerful. He is weeping over Jerusalem, even though the religious leaders of Jerusalem and many of the people had rejected him. In fact, they were seeking for a way to crucify him. And he weeps over Jerusalem. The other time in the scripture when we see Jesus weeping was at the death of his friend Lazarus. But here he is weeping over the loss because he knows that judgment is coming. That's the background that then begins chapter 24. Let's look at what it says. Verse one, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be uh, left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. The disciples are looking and they see the incredible beauty and majesty of the temple. And in a little bit, I'm going to show you just how majestic this temple was. It's absolutely incredible. But Jesus is predicting, he's saying, because his house, his temple has been left desolate, it is no longer a house of prayer for all nations. It is no longer a place where people find forgiveness and connection to God. Because it has been emptied of everything it was intended to be, judgment is coming upon the temple and upon Jerusalem. And he's going to tell his disciples exactly how that's going to happen, and he predicts specifically that every stone of the temple will be taken apart. When you understand exactly how huge those stones were, what he's talking about, it's amazing. You'll see this in a moment, but the stones of the temple were some 27 meters long, over seven meters thick and over six meters high. Solid marble. And he says, not one stone is gonna be left on top of another. The disciples were captivated by the beauty of the temple. And let me, let me try to show you why they were captivated. On the temple, I think I have a picture of this, was a golden vine. The golden vine was the symbol... Of Israel, and on the the pillars, you can see here in the picture, the, the guy up there on the ladder, that's supposed to give you some idea of scale, okay? This is the doorway to the temple, and going up each of the columns and across the top and all the way around the top of the temple was this golden vine, and it had clusters of grapes that were two meters high, made of solid gold, now, when we go through the beauty of, of Prague and we see the National Museum with, with the gold that's been restored, it's impressive. Or you go to the National Theater and you see that crown along the top, you know, that, that it, again is, is kind of gold-plated. We look at that and go, man, that is, that is beautiful. There were 27,000 kilos of gold on the temple. Did you, did you get that? Do you think that might be a a lot? Understand, I put it there on the slide. In today's economy, that would be worth 1,433,000,000 euros of gold on one building. It was impressive, okay? And, And this is important because this is part of the reason why no stone was left on top of one another. It's an incredible structure, but Jesus says it won't last This is only a shadow of the real temple in heaven. And you can read about that in Hebrews chapter eight. That which impresses man is temporal, but that which impresses God brings forth his recognition and his uh, commendation is eternal. Man looks on the outside, but God measures the heart. And this magnificent edifice isn't what's important. That's what Jesus was saying to his disciples. In fact, it's going to be completely destroyed. So Jesus tells the disciples and tells us, don't be focused on the outside because not one stone will be left upon another in this. And within 40 years of his prophecy, exactly what he said came true. Jerusalem was taken by the Roman armies under the command of Titus in 70 A.D., And the account of the siege and destruction of the city um, is left to us by a historian named Josephus. He was a Jewish priest who was actually a captive in the city that the Romans would send out to to talk to the people and to record the events. And he recorded the siege of what happened in the temple and in Jerusalem in his book entitled The War of the Jews. He gives an an account of how he himself was imprisoned by the Romans and remained with them throughout the full length of the siege and destruction of the city. Now, originally, Titus, the Roman general, did not want to destroy the temple because he he believed it it was beautiful and it should have been preserved. But unfortunately, what had happened was a group of Jewish zealots in 68 AD, as they had rebelled against Rome, they took up um, occupation of the temple. They drove out the priests, and and so there were warriors, Jewish uh, nationalists, or zealots they were called, in the temple, and they took it over, and they cleared out, in fact, criminals were in the Holy of Holies, in the holy place. And they installed their own high priest. They painted him up like a clown, even though they were Jewish by by um, heritage, they had no respect for the temple. And the temple sacrifices that normally would go on were ended with the zealots. And I believe this is the prompting of the first sign that we're gonna see Jesus tells us. Um, it's It's a preview of what's called the abomination of desolation. That means something incredibly wicked comes into the emptiness of the temple. And so the zealots were there and, and so, unfortunately, for the Romans to conquer all of the occupying forces there in Jerusalem, they had to take the temple. And what happened was, was that the zealots themselves, who had already desecrated the temple, started a fire in the temple. And as the Romans tried to break in and kill them, One of their own leaders as well started another fire in the temple. So what happened was the temple, even though it was made of stone, there was enough uh, rubble and wood and, and elements there that could burn. And the fire was so intense, it was so hot, that all the gold of the golden vine melted upon all the stones. So those magnificent stones were covered, they were plated with gold. Which is exactly why the Romans dug up every stone and broke them apart so that they could heat them back up again and take the gold for themselves. Does that make sense? This is history, okay? This is what Jesus predicted. And the destruction was so great, the victory for the Romans was so great, and the reward that they had was so magnificent that Titus... When he returned to Rome, they, the Caesar built for him the Titus arch. There's a picture of that I'll show you in just a moment that is in um, Rome to this day. And it depicts, it has carvings on it of the sacking of the temple, of carrying out the golden menorah and the table of showbread, of the defeat of the Jews and the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem. And it's memorialized today in the Titus arch in Rome. This is all history that Jesus predicted precisely. The carnage and slaughter was absolutely terrible. This is the ancient world. And Josephus records that more than one million Jews died in the siege. And another 250,000 died outside of Jerusalem in the villages surrounding it. And 97,000 were taken captive many of which were taken as slaves back to Rome. The Romans just totally devastated absolutely everything in Jerusalem. Miamides, who is another Jewish writer and historian, also recorded that Terentius Rufus, that's a great name. If any of you are expecting a child, maybe you should consider that one. Terentius Rufus. I mean, does it just roll off your tongue? Maybe we can have a grandchild named that. I don't know. He was an an officer in the army of Titus. And history records through Miamides that with a plowshare, he tore, tore up the foundations of the temple. He used that to get underneath those stones so that they could be broken up and so that the gold could be taken off of them and melted. And it too is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy because in Micah chapter 3, verse 12, it says, therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field. Jerusalem will become like a heap of rubble and the temple hill a mound of overgrown thickets. So exactly what Jesus prophesies comes true. The next part of the passage though, look at verse three. And we're not gonna get too much farther until next week. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately and said, Tell us, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, I want you to to look at that very carefully because the disciples asked Jesus two questions. They are two separate questions. The first one is, when will every stone of the temple be taken down? When will that occur? And the second one is, what is the sign of the end of the age and of your coming? Two different questions. But what Jesus does is he answers both questions in an interwoven way that I call monovision. What he does is he gives some direction in his answer, and he is answering both those questions together. And we have to spend some time looking carefully to understand which part of the answer applies to which question. And the reason that I, I use monovision as an example is because what monovision is, is it is a corrective procedure for your eyes that allows one eye to see that which is near and another eye to see that which is distant. I have monovision, which is why when you see me reading, sometimes I squint with this eye because it can't see anything in my notes. It it can see you, but it can't see anything that's close to me. I have have monovision. And what you see here is, is that Jesus is answering that in the same way. He has one lens that he's answering things that are specifically coming soon in the destruction of the temple, and he has another lens that is answering what are the signs of the end of the age and of his return. Now, what's interesting is that in monovision, you have a common field that is in between. Okay, I can see close with this eye, I can see far with this eye, but I can see things that are in between with both eyes, and the two eyes work together in order to give me clear vision. Because actually, neither one of them are quite in focus, but the way in God's beautiful design of our eyes, the way they work together, I can see things clearly, even though one is set for near and one is set for far. Those are the birth pangs in this passage. The birth pangs that he talks about, certain signs that he reveals that are in there, that are things that will increase and will become more um, intense as the time for each of these events occur, those are common to both questions. And, And the birth pangs are things like false messiahs, wars and rumors of war, famines, earthquakes, persecutions, apostasies, and false prophets. He's saying, as the time gets close for the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem, you're going to see an increase in frequency of these things happening that I just mentioned. And as the world winds down and it gets closer to to Jesus' return, you're also going to see those birth pangs. They're common, but those are not the signs of either event. They're simply indicators that it is getting somewhat closer. But he gives specific signs for both questions. And let me briefly just give you, let me give you the near uh, lens. Jesus answers the near lens in verses 15. He says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. First of all, when you look at this passage, when you, if you look at it closely, you'll notice that Jesus uses a a different type of of, of speaking. He uses the pronoun you. He's speaking specifically to his disciples that are there. Throughout that whole passage, he's telling them, this is something you are going to experience in your lifetime. You need to be ready. And the sign that destruction is about to come is this desolation of the temple, which refers back to a passage in Daniel chapter 11 and chapter 12, and to an event that happened that's recorded in the book of Maccabees uh, um, in about 167 a, uh, AD that was kind of a foretaste of it. But what he means is when you see the temple sacrifices stop, and you see People who should not be there, who are not priests, where they've taken over the temple, you need to be ready to flee. And ultimately, when you see, in in, he gives uh, even more clarity over in in the book of uh, Luke, In Luke chapter 21, verse 20, he says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you know that its desolation has come near. Let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written are here. So Jesus says, when you see the temple be emptied, And people who shouldn't be there set up within it. And you see armies surrounding the city. You know it is time for you to leave. Why? He had already told his disciples that they're going to face persecution. But this persecution wasn't because of the gospel. This was the judgment of God because of the unfaithfulness of Israel. And so God wanted to preserve his church because he had a mission to send them on to take the good news to all peoples. And this destruction of Jerusalem became the catalyst that sent the gospel to every nation. And so God protected his people. He gave them warnings. And he said, when he says, if you're up on the rooftop, don't go down, what he's saying is run along the top of the roofs because the buildings were connected together. So don't go down and try to get your stuff. You flee immediately. If you're in the field, don't go back for your coat. You flee because the destruction is coming suddenly. And I'm protecting you because I have a job for you. And the historian, Eusebius records that the early church did exactly that. They listened to the instructions of Jesus, the prophecy that he gave them, the signs. They saw and recognized those signs, and they left Jerusalem, they hid in the wilderness and then they became a diaspora that went to all the known world, taking the gospel, fulfilling his great commission. That was the purpose that he had for them. But the purpose of all prophecy is to point us to Jesus and back to the things he's called us to do. Well, next week, we'll, we'll look a little bit more at the signs of the end of the age. But let me, let me just real quickly, just one more thing about that first destruction. I have a picture here of Masada. I want to, I want to give you an understanding of what this was like in the first century. The Roman siege of 70 AD uh, continued after Jerusalem was destroyed. A remnant of the, of the rebels flew to a mountain in the desert near the Dead Sea called Masada. And if you go to Masada today and you look from above, you can still see the Roman base camp, you can still see a wall all the way around the mountain, and you can still see the siege ramp that they built to capture the mountain. The evidence of exactly what took place, of exactly what Jesus predicted, is all throughout history. And that fulfilled prophecy should give us great confidence in the word of God. It should strengthen our resolve to believe that God means what he says. And if he means what he says, we want to obey it. So we'll look at this some more next week. um, And I hope this is okay. I know it's tedious because there's a lot to it. But I hope it'll be beneficial as we look at it. And I'm not going to spend more than one week on it. But... Um, If you have questions, feel free to write me and I'll find somebody who has an answer um, that can help you (laughs) because it is hard and it's confusing. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you care enough about us to show us at least pieces of your plan and of your purpose, to allow us to see how you've predicted the events that will unfold so that our eyes can be refocused on you. And Lord, I pray that this week, as we go throughout our week, that you would truly refocus our thoughts, our hearts, and our actions on being your hands and your feet, on speaking your truth, on sharing the gospel with those around us here in this city. Lord, that you would use this reminder of how you perfectly fulfilled prophecy in the past to prompt us to obedience in the now. So, Lord, would you speak to each of us because we need to hear from you? And, Lord, would you give us the grace to trust you more, to love you more, to love your church more? brothers and sisters in Christ more to protect their unity and to serve the needs of those around us as you would do. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.